if you follow the news correctly, that this year, the year 2022, not only it's a significant year for the US, but also it's a rather milestone for another country. That's right, China. Now this year for China, it's the 10th year anniversary for the Belt and Road Initiative, which is considered one of the major projects not only for the Chinese leader, but also for the country. But meanwhile, as China continued to create influence politically and also economically, we also need to talk about something more crucial, which is the maritime territorial dispute. For so long that China has been very much interested in dominating the power not only on land, in military, but also in water. But however, this time, some of the promises that China made before are gradually becoming reality. And so that's why today, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Mr. Raymond Powell. And Mr. Powell, it's a fellow at Stanford University's Distinguished Career Institute in California, and he recently concluded a 35 career in the U.S. Air Force, and most importantly, recently he came out with a brand new article and entitled, China's Vast Maritime Claims Are Becoming Reality. Without further ado, Ray, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks, Will. I really appreciate it. No problem. The pleasure's all mine. Now, Ray, let's get started. Again, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote. Now, based on the article, here's the first question I want to dive into. And this is something that you wrote, and I quote, Rather, it was part of the brazen pattern designed to deter and intimidate foreign ships and aircraft from operating legally in China's rapidly growing sphere of influence, uh, specifically the international sea and the airspace that China wants the world to accept its own sovereign territory. So the first question to you is raised, can you help us to understand what does that mean when China wants the whole world to accept its own sovereign territory? Can you help us to understand the key phrase, the, the, the sovereign territory? What's the meaning behind this? Sure. Thanks, Will. Um, so I, I think it's important to start with the concept of international law, mm -hmm. and that specifically that was sort of laid out in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea back in 1982, a convention that China did sign and, and, and agree to in 1996. And so what what that says is that there is there are maritime commons mm. which all all nations have a right to we sort of you know, maybe call this the high seas and part of that then then bleeds into something called the exclusive economic zone which mm. each country would have its own exclusive economic zone that gives those countries a right to the resources within that part of the sea and then there are very very small parts of the sea which are adjacent to the country going out a 12 nautical miles we would call a territorial sea so china signed up to this concept this 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 framework this international law but recently and within the last couple of decades has gradually extended its claim to say essentially that all of this maritime space is actually china's because is that china is essentially its domestic waters mm. because it has historic rights to them. 
And so this concept of historic rights in China's view, in China's enunciated view, supersedes the international law that was spelled out in the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. And that space is actually quite vast, as, as, I, as I point out in my article, and goes into the exclusive economic zones of other countries, including Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia. That's right. You know, Ray, it's so interesting, again, as I mentioned in intro, this year, it's rather crucial for the Chinese government, because when we talk about China today, and besides this political influence, but from this economic perspective, Belt and Road Initiative continue to generate more noises than ever. Now, for Chinese government, owning this territory not only on land but also in water signifies or symbolizes the much greater ownership or much greater power again for the leader and also for the country so my next question to you is even though we know that what the international tribunal court has already decided in terms of in terms of this sharing or this legal ownership of the water but china again recently claimed that decision was made by the International Tribunal Court was, quote, biased or was not acceptable. So, Ray, my question to you next one is, where did China get uh, get this such confidence or such credibility able to deny what the International Court has already decided? Can you help yeah. us? No, that's, um, that's, that's well put. So, I'd say confidence more than credibility because i don't know that any other country has accepted china's view mm. on on its rejection of the un tribunal's uh ruling which and the ruling we should be clear says that the nine dash line that it draws through the south china sea has no basis in international law mm. and, and so i don't know that it has credibility but i think confidence is the right word because what China has managed to do through really two avenues. One is through the building out of its uh, of the rocks and reefs that it occupies and building those out to make them essentially ports and airfields uh, and even military bases. Um, and then also in the vast expansion of its maritime militia. So what it, what China has managed to do is essentially change the facts on the ground, the reclaimed ground in this case, mm. so that it's it, it 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 dominates the space. So it can it can say on one hand, we dispute this, uh, these are our historic rights, but on the other hand it can say, and by the way, what is anybody going to do about it? Because what China has managed to do is so thoroughly um uh, have have its presence operations so thoroughly overwhelm anyone else's uh, uh, fishing fleets or uh, even you know other countries sort of steam through with with naval vessels, but nobody is able to sort of sit and stay and and block out other countries' uh, vessels the way that China can. 
Well, but Ray, regarding the nine dash lines, and again, evolved more than three to five, you know, different countries, and specifically, you know, the Philippines, and as we mentioned before, Malaysia, Vietnam, you know, the region of Taiwan. I mean, those countries play a strategic role. I guess on one hand, you could say they're trying to woo the relationship with China, but also meanwhile, they can't afford to lose their own territory. Keep in mind, this is a shareable territory for all of them and particularly for the Philippines. So my next question to you is, some of the countries that we mentioned are listed as the strategic partners in Southeast Asia. And under this Belt and Road Initiative, they need China. So in other words, they have this reciprocity or reciprocal relationship. But on the other hand, they are not satisfied with what the Chinese government or what the Chinese leader is actually doing uh, in terms of the maritime dispute. But they can't really act or perform this on their own. So my next question to you is, where do those countries or how do those countries build alliance in order to defend itself in terms of protecting their own sovereignty or protect their own sovereign rights in the water? Yeah, so that's been a really tough challenge for them. Um, <clears throat> the the only structure that draws these countries together, uh, and I, I, we should probably put Brunei in that category as well, although they've their 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 claims are relatively small and they they haven't they haven't spoken up very much. <clears throat> but um, the only thing that really draws them together is the uh, the structure of ASEAN, which of course includes ten countries, <clears throat> many of whom have no maritime claims mm. in the South China Sea, and some of whom, you know, have a much closer relationship with China. And so it's very difficult for these countries to get together and agree on a a, a, a corporate position that has mm. meaning. So for many, many years, there has been, in fact, decades, there has been an effort to create a South China Sea code of conduct mm. in in uh, consultations with China, but they, this has never panned out. They've, they've come up with a very watered down declaration of conduct, which doesn't seem to be specific enough to actually accomplish anything. And the, the code of conduct, every time it gets down to sort of what we call brass tacks, what, mm. what, every time it gets down to really the, 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 the most important issues tends to fall apart and, and, and it never advances to the point where it can actually be implemented. Because in the end, these nations have fundamentally conflicting positions that just can't be resolved uh, in this way. And so I think you know, really the only hope that these countries would have to get together would maybe be to, to, to narrow down the grouping and exclude some of the countries that are outside of this immediate problem and you know ha have something of say a, a mini lateral to uh to to make clear that they have real concerns here now ray what about the role of american government in terms of forming or supporting those countries and again you know under sitting u.s president joe biden there's something stood out and also for, for Chinese government, it can be seen as a major political or economic threat, which is the Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, that involved the country of India, Australia, you know, Japan. 
we can say that all these countries or um, I guess some of the countries are not on the good term with China. But meanwhile, at this moment, since we're living in this unpredictable world, we can't be too loose in terms of attacking China or try to be more, I guess, say, how can I say, be provocative towards China. But meanwhile, U.S. has to play a significant role in terms of defending its own rights and also helping the allies and helping the economic partners. So, Ray, help us to understand how much influence does U.S. have today in terms of defending this maritime ownership and also how is U.S. actually supporting and helping other countries in terms of to fight against what China has been denying but actually is the reality? So the United States position on the maritime claims in the South China Sea is, is, is pretty, um, is, is a little nuanced, right? So the actual claims to actual features in the South China Sea, the U.S. takes no position on who owns what, because mm. as you may know about the various claims, a lot of them overlap and uh, some of them are, are more expansive. Mm. Um, and so we, the, the United States does not actually go out and say, okay, we, we agree that the Philippines owns this mm. and Vietnam owns that and China owns that. Uh, what we do is we say, look, we're, we're, we're going to be sort of purposefully agnostic on that question. What we are very invested in, I'm speaking as an American, hmm. uh, what the, our, the, the, the American uh, government is very invested in is what we often refer to as the rule-based international order. Hmm. And this was essentially the order that grew out of uh, the post-World War II era and with the United States sort of as the leader of that effort. And uh, we often refer to that, that period of time that came out of that, and to, to some extent that you know we've been living in as the Pax Americana or the American peace, uh, because everyone sort of agreed to this order. And even before there was a UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, there was sort of a broad-based acceptance that the commons, the maritime commons, should remain the commons. And that has been beneficial to everyone, and in fact, has been extremely beneficial to China. Um, so China has now, as we talked about before, reached this point of great confidence and would like to assert a, a different a revised strategy. Sometimes mm. there's a question of whether or not China is a revisionist power. Well, certainly in the, in the South China Sea it is. And it, it would like to say, it would like people to recognize its own claim, which is extra legal. And uh, the U.S. is very concerned that if countries begin to do this and follow China's lead and say, OK, we are going to make these extra legal claims, then that rules based international order will begin to disintegrate. So that's the U.S. position. Now, what can the U.S. do? It, that's a that's a really good question. What everyone sees, and we just saw another, we just saw this past week, we do these freedom of navigation operations. That's right. And what those are is that those are not a strategy to you know, undo what China has done. Uh, actually, that's that's simply a an operation that has, has happened for over 40 years uh, all over the world against any na nation's extra legal claims. And it's simply an, as an assertion that the United States will continue to fly and sail wherever international law allows. Mm. And so it is a continuation of a long-term uh, strategy to ensure that whatever extra legal claims other countries make, it will not affect the United States. 
that is an important thing to do. It is a necessary thing to do, but it is not sufficient to solve this problem. And this is a really tough problem. And we're, we're, we're to, uh, to be honest, it's a struggle to figure out how exactly to, uh, to, to go after this because China's strategy mm. uh, has been so different from anything that we've seen before in the way that it essentially asserts its will through presence, mm. through a continuous and uh, uh, very, very strong presence that intimidates its neighbors. Mm. Ray, again, I want to go back to the article. Again, this is something that you wrote. According to the article that you mentioned, Beijing's military spokesperson was quick to pin, quote, dangerous and provocative label on the target of the aggression, declaring that unarmed Australian plane threatened China's sovereignty because it approached China's territorial airspace. Now, I want to talk about the military power in China. And we know that for centuries, it's been, I guess, how can I say? It's more getting more and more ambiguous regarding China's military power. On one, on one hand, we've seen some of the greatest demonstrations from the Chinese government, especially during the critical anniversaries you know, for the Chinese government. But also, on the other hand, that China's military power, it's on the rise, not only for the water, but also, again, you as someone that who served 35 you know, years in Korea in the U.S. Air Force, which is a, a, a congratulations on this milestone. But again, how can we make this, I guess, military power in China today? So in other words, if China keep on strengthening the military power in the water and also through the air, Ray, according to your expert, what is the ultimate goal that China China is trying to accomplish? And keep in mind, people are saying the reason why China keeps on developing this is because sending a clear message to Taiwan and also to the U.S. The message is very clear. Do not cross the line. Would you agree with this statement or you think there's something much bolder or something much more courageous behind China's military growth? Yeah, I don't know that. I'm not sure that um, China's uh, ambitions have a limiting principle. Uh, I think at present, what China has been seeking to do is to carve out what we used to call a sphere of influence. Mm. Uh, and maybe in uh, our naivete, believed for a period of time that that period had left us, that nations didn't have to do that anymore because we had this wonderful rule, rules-based order mm. and everyone could sort of prosper together and for a long time we we sort of acted on that assumption that china would recognize that the rules-based order was beneficial to china and and would sort of keep the peace and let everybody prosper and that would be good for everybody uh, it's clear, particularly in the last 10 years, but even you know beyond that, that China is not going to be uh, satisfied with the rules-based order because China did not was not part of setting up the rules-based order in any significant way. When it was set up, you know, China was still very much a developing country, and China feels, uh, and sort of speaking generally, the Chinese government uh, feels that it, its time has come that its uh, century of humiliation uh, is over and it's, it's, it, it has risen to the point where it wants to 
take what is rightfully China's. And that in, that includes the ability to dominate its region in a sphere of influence that is unquestioned. And so that is why China reacts so strongly to other countries making um, uh, making their own assertions of international law within that space. So uh, you know, this leads us to sort of these, these unusual, in our experience, uh, assertions on China's part that other countries have come all the way across the water to, to violate its, its, its own sovereign rights to the space. And you know, China plays a bit of a double game here because China does itself uh, have surveillance operations within mm. other countries' uh, exclusive economic zones. We're familiar with this from the American perspective. Whenever we have a room of the Pacific exercise uh, off, off of Hawaii, there will be a Chinese surveillance vessel uh, mm. who will pull up. And it's, it, we make it clear that you know we're not happy about it, but it's within its rights. It's allowed to do that. Uh, in fact, when I was uh, the defense attache in Australia, we had another biennial exercise called uh, Talisman Saber. And, you know, sure enough, there would be a Chinese vessel in Australia's exclusive economic mm. zone watching the watching the exercise, doing what it does. And again, the Australians didn't like it. It made the newspapers. But in the end, Australia recognized that it was within its rights to do so. But of course, if something happens within China's exclusive economic zone, then oftentimes there are these protests that we are being provocative. Uh, we or the Australians or the Canadians or whoever it is that, that they're, they're, they're concerned about. And so, you know, I think we need to make it clear that is, if we're going to say that the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea remains uh, a relevant and active uh, tool to judge whether or not people are doing things that are legal or illegal, then we should be consistent. Um, so, you know, I, I think what what China is doing is trying to claim that certain place, certain parts of the maritime commons are outside of the jurisdiction of that uh, international law and reclassify them effectively as China's domestic waters. And. Ray, from your perspective, again, going back to the quad relationship, you know, with the U.S. and Australia, India, Japan, you know, there's four strategic partners that heavily depend on each other. How much do you think that the four partners, when they form this quad relationship, able to challenge China just solely on this maritime dispute. So in other words, we know that no one country can directly go head to head with China, but together there has to be one or somewhat vulnerabilities that China is afraid. Do you think it's much easier for the for the Quad to identify the vulnerabilities of China or uh, the, the, the I, I guess we should leave that uh, uh, question for a bit until the relationship among the four members gets better. What is your take on that? Yeah, I think that the quad is, well, it's, I mean, it's a very encouraging uh, development. It, it, it is actually very helpful to have these four large democracies um, coming together to agree to uh, certain um, very important positions on very important issues. The security part of the Quad is uh, a, a bit is, is trailing other 
uh, aspects of the Quad. And I think that's fine, right? I, I think as we see even in Ukraine, uh, India is not in the same place as the other three democracies are mm. on, on certain external relations issues and probably won't be for at least the foreseeable future. Uh, India very much prizes its independence and does not want to be seen as part of an, uh, an alliance grouping, so to speak. And of course, the other two countries, Australia and Japan, are U.S. allies. Mm. Uh, and so that's that's always going to so India will be the outlier for the foreseeable future. Um, but I think that India does have an interest in the South China Sea mm. and wants to see it remain free and open. Um, it you know obviously depends very much on the the trade routes and is is concerned about the maritime commons remaining common. So I think that you will see steps taken with the Quad to try to at least illuminate what's going on in the South China Sea. And there, there were, there's evidence of this already as the recent uh, announcement that the, the four countries are now going to work together on a certain commercial satellite mm. uh, imagery project to uh, illuminate the, the problem of dark shipping, as, as we call it, you know, the I illegal uh, fishing fleets and other things that happen in the South China Sea. And so the the power of sunlight to sh demonstrate clearly where certain malign activities are taking place, I think will be helpful to showing, you know, how uh, this problem has been um, evolving. This is not I think that India and the other countries would all say, you know, very clearly that this is not a counter China initiative, mm. but I think that China will be demonstrated through this effort to have, to be part of the problem that the effort is, is designed to eliminate. Ray, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's talk about something that actually took place recently. Now, more than 60 journalists recently flew to Fiji, one of the important territory you know, on the planet, and the purpose is to attend one of the major important economic relationship, which is called Pacific Island Forum. Now, I'm sure that you're familiar. One of them, the Kiribati, was absent and would actually withdrew from the membership the night before the forum, which caused the firestorm within the international community. On one hand, people are saying because China's influence over this island that caused the absence of the leader. But meanwhile, people are saying it's time for U.S. to reshape the strategy with the Pacific Islands partners. So from your perspective, again, you're the expert on, on the uh, maritime analysis. How much can we trust the Chinese government today that create their influence over those islands? So in other words, do you think that in terms of uh, uh, strengthening the relationship with those islands, U.S. and China, it's in for another political and economic competition? Yeah, and I think that it's fair to say that China has extended the reach of where it is um, interested in contesting uh, the influence of the U.S. and its allies, and I, I mention its allies in particular here because, of course, uh, the Pacific Islands are very much in the, um, you know, sort of in the neighborhood mm. of Australia, and Australia is extremely concerned about what has been happening here recently. Of course, we've talked about the security arrangement between China and the Solomon Islands, 
And uh, so Australia, they, China has got Australia's full attention at this point. And the tactic that China generally uses in regards to these places is what we often refer to as elite capture, mm. which is that it seeks to uh, get the leaders of, or the, the, the um, very uh, influential people in a particular place to agree by whatever means with its agenda. <clears throat> and then another thing that China tends to do is to try to disrupt the gatherings of of these people, um, these these different countries, China always wants to deal bilaterally uh, because it tends to think that it has better leverage when it does so. And so, yes, what we've you know now we don't know exactly what has happened between Kiribati and uh, China, mm. but it, it, there it is certainly would fit the pattern if there was an effort by China to disrupt the gathering of the Pacific Island Forum because. When the countries get together and speak with one voice, oftentimes they make declarations or agreements that are counter to what China wants to see in the region. Now, I want to wrap up our conversation again by lending out this uh, uh, Pacific Island Forum. Vice President Kamala Harris, during this virtual summit, and uh, promised that to the leaders of those islands, the U.S. is going to invest more than $600 million in order to strengthen this relationship. And again, I think this is a very strong signal to Chinese government and also to the Chinese leader. But meanwhile, again, going back to the article that you wrote, China's vast maritime claims are becoming reality. Now, is it too late for U.S. at this moment to wake up into this reality and realize we can't wait anymore. We need to take immediate actions to counter China's growing influence politically and also economically. So is it too late for U.S. to act right now? Or we should wait just a little bit longer until China sees its own vulnerability and then U.S. can step in to, to reclaim itself to be the leader for those islands. What is your take, Ray? So I do want to make a bit of a distinction between when we talk about the Pacific Island Forum and, and the South the South Pacific or what Australia would refer mm. to as just the Pacific. Uh, those fall beyond what we see now as China's maritime claims. So it's it's beyond the nine dash line, if you will. But it, it, what we're, we are talking about is uh, increasingly what we'd refer to as gray zone activities mm. by China to extend the, its its reach and power in ways that are counter to uh, the kinds of things that the U.S. and its allies would like to see. Is it too late? No, uh, but there is a lot that needs to happen uh, in order for the United States and its allies to sort of get back ahead of this issue, because frankly, we have been playing catch up. We talked about freedom of navigation operations. Those are not a strategy or a tactic to to win. Those are simply those are more of a rearguard action. This is, you know, the, it is it is something that we are simply continuing to do, and they've just been impregnated with vast new significance because of the uh, the boldness of China's claims. Um, so I think that the United States and its partners and allies are going to have to get much more creative and much more serious about how how we all go about um, trying to get back ahead of this problem and sort of go on 
the offensive, and that sounds very military, but I don't think actually much, I think most of this problem is not one that you, you really want to see a military solution to. Mm. It's going to need to be much more whole of government, and it's going to have to respond to conditions that we've never seen before, just in the way that China has gone about um, asserting its, its will and its strength within the, its, 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 its near abroad. Well, Mr. Raymond Powell, it's a fellow at Stanford University's Distinguished Career Institute in California, and he recently concluded a 35-year career in the U.S. Air Force, and now he's the author of the latest article entitled, China's Vast Maritime Claims Are Becoming Reality. Ray, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. We really appreciate your insight and analysis, and we'd love to have you back on the show for our future episodes regarding China's political and economic power on land and also in the water. Thank you, Ray. Thanks, Will. It's been a pleasure to talk.